Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're continuing Dr. Newfeld's series, Singing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land. He's speaking to us on a message entitled, Glory to God in All Things, as we open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 to 30. Let's join Dr. Newfeld now. I wonder if you've ever had someone taking credit for what you have done. You may not know it, but history is replete with examples of people stealing others' ideas and inventions and then claiming them for their own. You know, some of us remember the humorous example in the U.S. presidential campaign a number of years ago now, where Al Gore said, During my service in the United States Congress, I took the initiative in creating the Internet. Of course, the credit doesn't go to Al Gore. I mean, the most often called father of the Internet is a man by the name of Vinton Cerf, but even he was reliant on a host of others. You know, the famous example is that of a man named Marconi trying to take credit for that which was invented by Nikola Tesla. There are many other such events in history. Once they're discovered, we tend to pour ridicule and scorn on those who try to steal the work of others, rightly so. Have you ever wondered how it looks when we try to take credit for things that God has done? I think of literally thousands of examples of just such a thing, including the credit some of us will take for even our own salvation. But God is fiercely protective of his glory. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, God claims that he will not share his glory with another. Daniel 2, 24 to 30 is one of those accounts where everyone is stepping on top of someone else, just trying to take credit of that which they had not done. And in the midst of this stands Daniel, a man who has very different approach to life. Let's learn from him today. But let's back up. Babylon is in a state of crisis. In spite of her powerful victories on the battlefield and in spite of architectural wonders that dazzled the then world, in spite of an empire that was as large as that part of the world had yet known, Babylon was troubled. She was troubled because her king was troubled. King Nebuchadnezzar had a recurring dream that frightened him. In the dream, he saw a statue that was struck by a large rock. That rock destroyed the statue and the rock itself became a mountain that filled the entire earth. That dream unsettled him, and and he thought it had an ominous implication for his kingdom. And so he demanded that the wise men of Babylon be able to tell him what he had dreamt before they offered him an interpretation. But of course, as the wise men said, no wise men could tell the king what he had dreamt in his private bedroom. Only the gods know such things, and, and they do not live with men. And in a response of anger at the worthlessness of his magical advisors, Nebuchadnezzar had determined to kill every last one of his miserable so-called wise men. And in the meantime, Daniel and his three friends went to prayer, and God revealed the king's dream to Daniel. In an instant, Daniel becomes the most important man in Babylon. Now, how is he going to react to that instant fame? Well, let's pick up from that point. I'm, I'm reading Daniel 2, verse 24. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Now notice the order of Daniel's words, because this ordering of events is significant. If he had begun with the words, I will show the king the interpretation, we might well think he's laying hold of his sudden importance. But his first words are, spare the lives of the wise men. Please don't kill anyone. 
You know, some people might think that Daniel passed up on a divine opportunity here. See, in the future, these wise men would become his sworn enemies. If Daniel had only taken the initiative to reveal the mystery of the king's dream and then had pointed out that the occultic studies in Babylon's religion were really a fraud, he might have leveraged this into an enormous personal advantage, but he does not. And in this, he commits himself not to trade that which God has given him into his personal advantage. He's going to leave that to God. Years later, Jesus would say of his followers, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And Daniel really does respond first by showing concern for the wise men of Babylon who stood at the point of death. Spare the lives of the wise men, he says. Now, this is particularly instructive, for in the next chapter, when death is being threatened on Daniel's three friends, it was the Chaldeans, the leadership of the wise men, who took the initiative to have Daniel's friends killed. They must have viewed them as a very dangerous competition indeed. Now, of course, Daniel would not have known that they would do that, but he must have seen indications in their character. I mean, these were men who were seeking to gain their own advantage in the kingdom. Theirs was a culture in which people literally crawled over one another to gain advantages over one another. And after Daniel pleads with Arioch not to kill the wise men of Babylon, he then tells him why. He has the interpretation the king is looking for. And what happens next will be a very clear indicator of exactly what is happening around the throne room of the king of Babylon. I'm now reading verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Wow. Now that statement almost takes your breath away. Arioch, the king's hatchet man, has his own ego problems. He wants to make it sound like he's been doing overtime. Yes, he would gladly execute the wise men of Babylon, but while he was preparing for the task, he was also looking for an answer to the king's problem. And indeed, a solution is now at hand because this man, this man, Arioch, has nothing but the king's personal interests in mind, and, and he excels at finding just the right people that the king needs. You see, the problem that besieges all kings and presidents and prime ministers is that it's very difficult for them to figure out who's done what. Everyone is using their opportunities to gain advantage over the other, and in that People of power have a great deal of difficulty knowing who they can rely on. I mean, who's going to tell them the truth? Now, having noted this, Arioch does take a chance. By announcing that he has found the man who will offer the interpretation to the king's dream, it must be said, I mean, that Arioch doesn't actually know what Daniel's going to say. I mean, if Daniel blows this, I mean, you have to assume, after taking so much credit for these matters, Arioch might find things turned around and then his own head is on the chopping block. But Arioch appears quite willing to take the risk, and it must have been that he's already observed something in Daniel. He must have known that Daniel was no braggart, no no egotistical exaggerator. See, he must have known that when Daniel said that he could interpret the king's dream, it meant that, well, he could interpret the king's dream. Well, let's continue to read. It's verses 26 and 27. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show the king the mystery that the king has asked, 
But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay on bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Now, there are, if we pay close attention to this speech, four important lessons that we can learn about a God who wants glory for himself. Daniel is not looking for a way to gain some advantage for himself, but rather he is looking for this to be the moment where the fame of God can be spread throughout Babylon. Before we look at the four markers that reveal Daniel's heart attitude, we need to step back and ask ourselves the most fundamental of all questions. Would you be fine if you worked to bring the gospel to others and received no credit whatsoever? That is, not in this life. See, are you comfortable with God's words that are said in Isaiah 48, verse 11? For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Are you okay when no one praises you, but when multitudes praise your God? Now, if you're honest and you say, at this point, I I long for personal praise, then hear the words of Jesus recorded in John 5, 44. He said, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, as long as we seek our own fame, our own glory, our own success, and, and the praise that others shower on us, We actually show, says Jesus, that we do not believe at all. But Daniel's example shows us the picture of a man who seeks the fame and the glory of God, and we do so well if we learn to be like him and learn the principles that made him like that. Seeking after the fame and glory of God? Now that needs to be our heart's desire and our life's goal. Well, we'll continue to learn more when Dr. Neufeld returns in just a moment. It's now less than a year before we head off on our New Testament Greece by land and by sea tour. As time grows closer, the interest is picking up and we anticipate reaching our max goal of 80 guests. So if you're considering joining us for this 12-day tour of Greece, which includes daily Bible teaching by Dr. John Neufeld in places like Ephesus, Athens, and even a special visit while we're on the cruise portion of the tour to Patmos, then you'll want to make your inquiry soon. God is blessed in so many ways as people journey where the great people of the Bible walked and lived out their calling. Now it's your opportunity to experience this great time of spiritual blessing, refreshment, and renewal. And you can find out who else will be joining us when you give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld. When Daniel stood before King Nebuchadnezzar, and please remember, he's the most powerful king of the day. Daniel's got a revelation that no other human being in all of Babylon had. So Daniel made a decision that he would give all the credit where it was rightly due. He would not attempt to rob God of glory, 
but he would be more than content to stand in the shadows and shine the spotlight on a God who is unlike anything that had ever been seen or known in Babylon. If God created the earth for his glory, and if God was determined that one day all the earth would be filled with the glory of God, Daniel seemed cognizant of that reality, and this was the moment that God's glory would shine in Babylon. And Daniel does so in four distinct ways. First, Daniel understood that no one gives glory to God while proving oneself superior to others. Look, it would have been very easy to say at the moment that Daniel stood before the king then, that he would mock the abilities of the king's counselor, but but he does not. He says, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Indeed, that's exactly what the wise men had been saying to the king. Daniel affirms that what they have been saying is indeed true. What the king has asked was beyond the ability that these men had. Now, in saying this, Daniel is in fact indicating the lack or the shortcoming in all non-revelatory religions. Look, see, the world is full of religions, and in in some cases, these religions claim to have a revelation from God. But, But if they do, then they'd better prove no mistakes, no errors, no contradictions, no false predictions in all that they claim to come from God. Isaiah 41, 21 to 23 makes the case clearly. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the God of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome to declare to us things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. See, that's the challenge to all the religions that claim a revelation from God. Tell us unerringly the past and the future. You know, in the Bible, we not only have the record of God's dealings, including the parting of the Red Sea and speaking to two million people in Mount Sinai, but we also have a book that records God's declaration of what shall come. And then years later, we can see the actual fulfillment. I suppose the book of Daniel is a supreme example of that as it predicts the rise of the exact empires, one after another, that will come after Babylon, finally with the appearance of the Messiah. See, that's the mark of a true revelation of God. That is 100% accuracy, never erring, always truthful, without mistakes in all that it declares. If you don't have that, you have no revelation from God. What you have is a fraud. But there are also non-revelatory religions that are, are simply the sayings of wise men. Wise men do have some things to say, but as the wise men of Babylon admitted, they do not live with the gods. Their knowledge cannot move beyond the spheres of men. And that's why when it comes to eternal matters, or when it comes to matters of our destiny, we need God. And it was this that Daniel wants the king to understand. It's not that he knows something that the others don't know, or that the wise men have come up short. He rather wants the king to know why the wise men have come up short. And it turns out the wise men have already admitted that. Now to the second thing that Daniel wants to say. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. There are two aspects of this second indication which he gives God glory. The first is that there is a God in heaven. See, all the wise men could speak of 
was the gods, but, but Daniel knew that there was but one God. And this flies in the face of what was believed by the Babylonians. Marduk was the chief deity, the head of their pantheon, but after him came many others. They had gods of the heaven and the sky, gods for fertility, gods for wisdom, gods for war. There was the sun and the moon gods and so forth. You know, I find it interesting that Daniel does not mention the name of God, for I'm assuming the Babylonians would simply have added one more name to their pantheon, but by phrasing the matter differently, he places his God in a category that is not inhabited by theirs. Isaiah records God saying, to whom will you liken me? But Daniel's not done with that. He lets Nebuchadnezzar know that the God of heaven reveals mysteries. The emphasis is upon revelation or on the fact that God speaks. Indeed, for the first time, Nebuchadnezzar learns that the God of heaven has been speaking to him. Now, it's true that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know what it is that God is saying, but in essence, this is the nature of much of Scripture. God acts first, and then he appoints prophets and apostles, and they explain what it is that he's just done or said. See, as an example, You could have walked by the cross of Jesus and not have understood what God was doing and saying there. But once a prophet explains the nature of the atonement, that this is God's Passover lamb, that a ransom is being paid in the blood of God's only begotten son, well, suddenly now all things become clear. See, we need a prophet to understand. And so Daniel has been shining the spotlight on God. First, that non-revelatory religion can't know what God is saying. And second, that there is but one true God who speaks his message to men. Now, third, Daniel speaks about what is the content of God's message. He says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. See, the book of Daniel points out that history is not cyclical, but it's linear. What do I mean? Well, there are those, especially among those who hold to reincarnation, who believe in the endless cycle of birth and rebirth. See, in this view, history is not going anywhere. But in the Bible, history begins when God creates the heavens and the earth. Prior to that, there was nothing but the one solitary God. So nature, the universe, sun, the moon, the stars, none of that is eternal. Only God is eternal. History is going somewhere, from the first creation to the new creation. And from that perspective, there really are latter days. As Peter would declare in 2 Peter 3, verse 10, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. See, there's indeed a point that all history is working toward. What Nebuchadnezzar was about to learn is that his kingdom, Babylon, was not the ultimate kingdom, but rather one in a series of kingdoms, all leading to a point. God, in his sovereignty, was moving all the kingdoms of history to one final point when his kingdom would rule over all. In short, Nebuchadnezzar was going to be introduced to a way of seeing things that he had never conceived of before. His was more than a disturbing dream. His was a revelation from the God of heaven about meaning and about truth and about finding one's place in God's world. But still, Daniel is leading to that one point, that final point that would make everything else seem less important. Look again at the end of today's passage. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, 
but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. See, Daniel receives no glory, none at all. God had merely chosen him to convey what it is that he had to say to the king. See, I have no more wisdom than anyone, he says. And in a second, Daniel distances himself from Arioch, who so proudly announced that he had discovered the right man or, or the wise man, who you know, the, the kind of person who divines livers and reads stars and consults magical books and practices incantation. Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 20, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And in essence, Daniel agrees. There is nothing to distinguish the wise men of his day. Neither is there anything to distinguish himself. God, whose wisdom is beyond searching out, is the one we need to hear. How I wish in a world that that worships athletes and movie stars and politicians and even intellectuals, that we would acknowledge, I have no wisdom to commend myself, but there is a God of heaven. And in the end, to renounce all desire for fame and to say, I would see the glory of God, that that is wise and right and that leads to life. And by now, Nebuchadnezzar is listening. A man in a courtyard full of egomaniacs and power mongers is now with him. He is about to confront the truth. John, isn't this the great thing that separates us today from God? You know, this idea that we need the notoriety and we refuse to sort of defer to God because that might take the light off of who we are, even in the church, even as pastors. Yeah. Actually, it's an old story, isn't it, Ben? I mean, way back at the time of, uh, of Adam and Eve, I mean, the serpent came to Eve to say, you can be like God. Uh, you can be equal to him. And it is this wonderful thing that can happen to us when we finally come to this conclusion that, you know, I'm nothing, but God is everything. And uh, to, to just revel in the glory of God. I mean, uh, but we, we can test this on a regular basis. Uh, we, can, we can ask ourselves whether or not we find joy in that. Like what happens when we're, you know, passed over when uh, all the accolades are handed out, let's say at, you know, at, the, at a church banquet of some sort when we're telling of everyone who's made a difference and our names are missed, will we still revel in the fact that God is doing great things or will we remember that I was not given the proper recognition that I was due? See, it always comes back to that. I can almost hear, you know, Satan whispering, you can be like God. Amen. Thanks, John. And uh, be with us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Will you partner with us to tell the good news and proclaim God's word day after day? Well, you know, more than ever, people in our nation desperately need to hear and be transformed by the truths found in the Bible. We passionately believe that God has placed Back to the Bible Canada here for this purpose, to tell the next generation about the one who has come to restore and redeem humanity. So today, we invite you to join the Partner to Tell mission by becoming a monthly partner and help us continue to make a difference this year and far beyond. With many others, you'll play a vital role in sustaining what we do month after month, day after day. And in 2016, our goal is that 120 new partners would join us, but we need your help. So will you become one of those today? 
For more information, please visit backtothebible.ca or even give us a call right now at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.